Relations between nations require diplomacy of a delicate, nuanced, and subtle nature. So when you hear the President of the United States say, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. When you hear something like that from the President, there is no doubt that the seat we all share just got that much hotter. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a special examination of North Korea's nuclear weapons and missile program, the recent rounds of threats and saber-rattling between the U.S. and that country, what's behind it, how scared should we be? The answers are not what you think they are. We'll talk with Bruce Gagnon, head of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Reactors in Space, on the long and contentious history between North Korea and the United States, and what might be behind this current round of escalating threats. We'll also hear from Bo Jacobs, head of the Hiroshima Peace Institute, on how people in Japan are really responding to the heightened nuclear positioning between the two countries, and how Japan just might be stuck in the middle. Plus, if there's time, you'll be getting numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the news from around the world, and more honest nuclear information than you're getting from the White House, Pyongyang, and mainstream media combined. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 15, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out this week at the Hanford site in southeastern Washington state, long acknowledged as the most radiologically contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere. On June 8th, approximately 350 Hanford workers were ordered to take cover after alarms designed to detect elevated levels of airborne radioactive contamination went off. At the time, Hanford officials called the safety measure precautionary, and the contractor in charge of the demolition, CH2M Hill, downplayed the seriousness by saying workers were not at risk. But last week, King 5 television investigators, led by Susanna Frame, discovered an internal CH2M Hill email sent to their employees on July 21st that states that out of the first 65 test results that have come in, 12 have shown positive results for internal exposure by radioactive plutonium. 
Now the Union for Hanford Workers, H-A-M-T-C, has ordered a stop work order for any open-air demolition at the plutonium finishing plant on the Hanford grounds. No word yet of tests still outstanding for 236 people who were exposed at that time. In Plymouth, Massachusetts, the performance of Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station, located at the foot of Cape Cod, has shown no improvement in operation based on five violations found by federal regulators that were connected to the staff's failure to follow procedure and to keep parts in good working order. Guys, this is a nuclear reactor, not some clunker car. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission called these violations more than minor because they had the potential, quote, to lead to a more significant safety concern. Diane Turco, president of the anti-nuclear citizens group Cape Downwinders, expressed surprise at the lack of penalties for the violations. She said, It is quite alarming that the NRC documents ongoing repetitive federal safety violations, and yet allows Entergy to continue to operate. South Carolina's state-owned utility has dropped plans for rate hikes for the now-abandoned expansion of VC Summer Nuclear Station north of Columbia. Santee Cooper and South Carolina Electric and Gas decided on July 31st to halt construction on two new nuclear reactors they'd already jointly spent $10 billion to build, much of that paid for by millions of customers. After major outcry, South Carolina's state-owned utility dropped plans last Friday for two consecutive rate hikes. We covered this story on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 320 in an interview with Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. And in a joint statement by former nuclear launch officers, they wrote, Only the president can order a nuclear launch. That order cannot be vetoed, and once the missiles have been launched, they cannot be called back. The consequences of miscalculation, impulsive decision-making, or poor judgment on the part of the president could be catastrophic. The pressures the system places on that one person require enormous composure, judgment, restraint, and diplomatic skill. Donald Trump does not have these leadership qualities. And now from Japan... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. A bomb was found at Japan's still-radioactive triple-meltdown Fukushima nuclear plant site. The 85-centimeter-long, that's 33 inches for us here in America, object, believed to be an unexploded bomb dropped by the United States during World War II, was discovered by workers constructing a parking lot close to the still-deadly remains of the facility's reactors, This according to a spokesperson for Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO. How could they build that thing and not find a bomb left over from World War II? Well, according to Nancy Faust of SimplyInfo.org, the area where they found the bomb sounds like it is near the main gate, and the visitor center was built there even before Unit 1 was completed. So this area has been part of the plant all along. And the site was actually an airport during World War II and had been heavily bombed. Now one would think that they would have made sure they found all unexploded ordnance on the property before building nuclear reactors. 
And you got to wonder if this is more of General Electric's negligence in how they originally built the site. See, it was GE that established the entire concept for Fukushima and the grounds around it. That included cutting down the seafront hill where the reactors were supposed to be sited and putting them near sea level, which is what led to the catastrophic flooding of the reactors. GE seemed not to bring good things to light and not care about a lot because they just built the plant and handed it over to TEPCO after collecting a big fat check. Which raises the question, what else did they cut corners on knowing that they would not be responsible for it later on? And what is there still to find at this disaster site? That's why GE you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. We have two featured interviews today, aimed at providing context for the current situation between North Korea and the United States, along with a reality check on how this war of hopefully only words is being received by one of our Asian allies. First, one cannot understand the current nuclear war of words and threats between North Korea and the United States without understanding the history these two countries share. You won't find it in most history books. I know I didn't. So I turned to Bruce Gagnon, the Secretary Coordinator of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Bruce understands the roots of war, advocates ceaselessly for peace, and keeps his perspective both specific and global. We talked on Monday, August 14, about the historic issues that are influencing, if not manipulating and dominating, the current war of words and threats between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Bruce Gagnon, so great to have you back with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. As regards the current situation, the saber-rattling that is going on between the U.S. and North Korea, how far back can we trace the roots of this current crisis? Well, I think we have to go all the way back to the end of World War II, when the Japanese imperialists were defeated. They had been occupying Korea for quite a long time, very brutally. And so the U.S. took control of Korea and the very first thing the United States did was to put the former Koreans who collaborated with the Japanese to suppress their own people. The U.S. put these traitors, these collaborators, in charge of the new, quote-unquote, free Korea. And the people revolted. And more than 100,000 people were killed in a U.S.-directed slaughter of virtually anyone on the left that stood up and was seen standing against this uh, new, you could say, reoccupation of Korea. And then out of that grew the tensions that created the Korean War. And then fast forward to July 27, 1953, my birthday. I was one year old at the time. An armistice was signed between North Korea and the United States. The United States refused to sign a peace treaty. 
because they never accepted North Korea as a legitimate government. And so to this day, all these years later, since 1953, U.S. is still legally at war with North Korea. Why has this been allowed to remain open-ended? Is it ignorance? Is it intentional or a diplomatic oversight? Or is there perhaps a larger plan going on here? Well, I think the U.S. always intended for regime change, number one. I think the U.S. clearly has always wanted to take full control of the Korean Peninsula because guess who borders Korea? China and Russia. You know, during the Korean War, General Douglas MacArthur was in charge of the operation. He sent planes over the border into Russia to Vladivostok and bombed Vladivostok, trying to draw Russia into the Korean War. They didn't take the bait. So the U.S. has always seen Korea as an opportunity to take down China and Russia. And so the U.S. could never then accept this North Korean, in a sense, uh, safe zone that uh, protected China and Russia from an expanded U.S., essentially, military outpost on the Korean Peninsula. Since 1953, the relations between the two countries has been contentious at best. How has that led to the current standoff that is taking place between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un? Well, you know, the bottom line is that you know, right now the United States is doing war games as we speak in South Korea. And they do them with South Korean military. They're now bringing in Japan as Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in Japan, the grandson of one of Tojo's Imperial War Cabinet during World War II. Shinzo Abe in Japan has basically gotten rid of Article 9, the peaceful article of the Japanese Constitution. The peace movement has fought very hard the last few years in Japan to try to maintain that. So Japan is now on side with the U.S. in these war games, bumping up against the borders of North Korea. And so how is North Korea supposed to respond as they look back in recent years and see the U.S. attack on Yugoslavia, destroying that country, breaking it up into pieces. They see the U.S. invasion of Grenada and Panama, U.S. invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, U.S. invasion of Libya, the current invasion of Syria, and the U.S. invasion of Yemen along with Saudi Arabia. And so North Korea says to themselves, will this war game today be just a war game or will it be the real thing? And so how are they supposed to respond? And so they've come to the determination that holding nuclear weapons, which I'm opposed to, but holding them will keep them from being destroyed as a nation, something the U.S. clearly is out to do, without a doubt. So I think one can begin, when you look at all the pieces of the puzzle, one can begin to understand that North Korea is not crazy, as we're told constantly, as the United States and Western media demonize them. They're not crazy. They've figured out a way that they might be able to survive as a nation, and they're going to keep doing that. Uh, they've offered repeatedly to get rid of their nuclear weapons, 
if the United States essentially did two things. Number one, sign a real peace treaty. And number two, stop the war games on their border. Show that you accept the North Korean government as a legitimate government of its people. Leave them alone. And then they have no reason to have nuclear weapons anymore. So it's really in our hands. What role does diplomacy play in all of this? I've heard it said that if diplomacy was such a good tactic, how was it that North Korea was able to get this far in its development of not only nuclear weapons, but a delivery system? Well, in the end, I think diplomacy is instrumental. It's vital. It's fundamental. It's necessary because without it, what's the alternative? And I think the alternative is at least a dangerous standoff that could at any moment through some miscalculation or something else trigger into war or war itself. So neither of those two other options are very good. So I think the real key here is diplomacy. But you have to have willing partners in order for diplomacy to work. And the U.S. has shown repeatedly over the years, not just in North Korea, but everywhere around the world, just ask Native Americans about U.S. diplomacy, okay? So we've shown as a nation that we really aren't to be trusted when it comes to these kind of things. So until we change, I don't see anything changing. And that change can only come from an informed American people who demand that our government stop playing games on the Korean Peninsula. What is North Korea's current nuclear status? And how far have they gone in developing missiles as delivery systems? In other words, how serious is the threat that they could land the bomb on Japan or Guam or even mainland USA? Well, right now, according to Bulletin of Atomic Scientist and Washington Post, North Korea has four nuclear warheads. Four. The United States has 6,800. All you need to know is that because then you see the irrationality of all the U.S. claims that somehow North Korea is a huge danger to our country. It's all nonsense. It's all theater. It's Hollywood. But beyond that, North Korea clearly is developing missiles that can reach beyond their own country. But I will say that I remember a few years ago reading an article in Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine that reported on one of North Korea's missile launches. And they interviewed some U.S. military personnel whose job it was was to track that missile during its flight. And they were laughing at North Korea, making fun of them, saying, oh, we're not worried about them. They don't have the capability, the space assets, the space satellites and the ground stations beyond their own country so that they can really track the flight of their own missile. And these U.S. military personnel from the Space Command were saying, we're tracking it all the way. That really was an indication to me that the military itself doesn't really see North Korea as a real threat. But North Korea, I believe, is used as a foil to create fear and then ultimate justification for the U.S. then to expand its military, the so-called pivot, where 60% of U.S. military forces are now being moved into the Asia-Pacific, ostensibly to protect against North Korea, but really 
being used to encircle China and Russia as the United States goes after those two much bigger prizes. So in my mind, Korea is not really a huge threat. Admittedly, they can shell Seoul, which is not very far away from Pyongyang, and they can essentially kill millions of people in Seoul. But Korea has repeatedly said that they have a no first use policy, something that the United States refuses to adopt. So I don't think that North Korea is going to attack anybody unless they're attacked. And in fact, China just this past week has stated that if North Korea attacks anyone, China will not come to their aid. But if North Korea is attacked first by the United States, China will, in fact, come to their aid, which means that a U.S. attack on China will be World War III, because that means war between the United States and China, and ultimately Russia would be drawn in as well. There have been many sanctions against North Korea, especially in the past few weeks. Even today, China just passed further sanctions today against coal and steel. What are these sanctions intended to do to North Korea, and what unintended consequences might they be having? Well, I think the U.S. goal with these sanctions is to cripple the North Korean government to the point that the people rebel, revolt, throw out the current government and uh, put in a government that the United States would find to be more, quote-unquote, acceptable. But I think we've seen over many, many years that North Korea has learned to live on a shoestring and that ultimately I don't believe China is very interested in seeing North Korea collapse because if the United States was to have a more compliant government in North Korea, and essentially the unification of the Korean Peninsula under U.S. colonization, because South Korea is a colony today of the United States. There is no doubt about it. You can't have 25,000 U.S. soldiers there, 83 U.S. bases in South Korea, and not call that a military colony of the United States. U.S. really dictates policy there. So I think that the United States will be hard-pressed to see the collapse of North Korea. I think the people there are very determined. And they know what's at stake. They understand what's at stake. You know, it should be remembered that during the Korean War, the United States bombed every single standing building in North Korea. The people were living in caves and would come out at night to tend their gardens. They survived that terrible war where millions were killed and if they can survive that, they can survive this period of more economic sanctions. So the U.S. is really going to have to come to grips with, again, signing a peace treaty with North Korea, stopping war games on their border if it really wants peace in the region. But I don't think it does. I've read that North Korea is sitting on top of an estimated $7 trillion in minerals and other resources that are not being exploited. To what extent do you think that those resources may be playing into this current round of, at least at this point, war of words? I think it's a big, big uh, link. I think it's an important link. It's something that we've all just really learned about in recent days, literally, 
about this. Uh, North Korea doesn't have the money to develop, you know, to do the kind of mining and et cetera to bring these uh, these minerals out. And then, frankly, with all the sanctions against them, who would they be able to actually sell them to anyway? It was said that when Donald Trump made his fire and fury comment, it was completely off the cuff. I'm wondering from your perspective, does this sound like a random shot in the dark or might there have been an intentional strategy behind it? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think many people do. I could take a wild guess. I'd be happy to take it. I would say that they plan most things. Now, in Trump's case, we have to acknowledge that he is a bit of a, a wild hare at times. But I do think that they uh, are very calculating in things that they do. And I believe that they're trying to, again, heighten fear. They are trying to get the American people to accept massive increases in military spending. Oh, because North Korea might attack us, we need missile defense to protect us. And Trump is saying that we need a massive expenditure on missile defense systems that are really a Trojan horse. Uh, there are key elements in U.S. first strike attack strategy, missile defenses being used today to encircle Russia and China. Again, we're told that we need missile defense in South Korea to protect against North Korea, but in fact, the radar that has been deployed there just very recently in a community called Songju is going to have a 2,000 kilometer range that would allow the U.S. to see into China and Russia. So again, these systems are really, this mobilization is being aimed at China and Russia. So I, I can see that Trump would use this, you know, heightened fear, this exaggerated talk to scare people. We've seen polls just in recent days, 72% of the American people believe that the government has to do something about North Korea because they've been so petrified with all the demonization and uh, all, everything else uh, that they're, you know, crying out for, uh, you know, a solution. But in fact, most people in America can't even find North Korea on a map. They don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about this history that we've already talked about. Most Americans have really been dumbed down when it comes to foreign policy. Where do you see this going? What possible scenario or scenarios could come from the situation as it exists now? Well, I think it, <clears throat> the demonization will continue of North Korea. I don't see the U.S. taking the steps that would be required to reduce tensions. Again, they are sign a peace treaty with North Korea, stop the war games on North Korea's border. Imagine if North Korea or China or Russia were holding war games in Canada or Mexico. What would we do? What would we say? We'd go ballistic, okay? But when we do it to other countries, we're doing it now to North Korea. We do it to Russia currently. We're having war games. The United States and NATO are having war games in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, northern Norway, right along the Russian border, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Romania, Poland, you know, all encircling Russia with war games. If they did that to us, we wouldn't like it one bit. So until the United States stops this aggressive, very aggressive and provocative military escalation and war games, I don't see anything changing much. 
And the best we can then hope for under those circumstances is that the pressure from China and Russia saying to the United States, if you invade North Korea, we're in too, uh, that might be backing off the United States. I hate to see any, any of that ever happen, of course. But in a way, you can say that China's declaration that if the U.S. attacks North Korea, that China's in too. Uh, that might very well hold off the United States. You know, you are so articulate and so well-versed in all of this, though from an alternative perspective. I'm wondering with the ratcheting up of tensions in the last week or so, what has been the outreach from U.S. or international media to get your perspective? Well, besides you, I've been interviewed on Russia Today television. I've been interviewed on Iranian TV. And that's it. American media, not interested. Now, I remember I was telling my partner recently, I was recalling a time in the late 1980s, living in Orlando, Florida at the time, and working on a campaign to try to stop a launch of plutonium, deadly plutonium-238, on a uh, rocket from Cape Canaveral, Florida. That was called the Galileo. And I was organizing an international campaign to oppose it, and I was driving down the street one day, with the radio turned on and CBS News came on and I heard myself being interviewed on CBS radio about that campaign. And I told my partner, you know, today that would never happen because in these ensuing years between the late 80s and now, the media has been consolidated into the hands of just a few corporations, many of which are military industrial giants. And so they have no interest whatsoever in hearing from any peace or environmental activists on these kind of issues. The military has the largest carbon boot print on the planet, all right? That's not to be shared on mainstream media. More than 800 U.S. bases around the world, that is not to be put on the radio or newspaper or television either. And so the only media that we have anymore is alternative media, media that we create ourselves, or media from other countries. And that's really where we're at. Do you see any way at all that the current status, the current infrastructure of the U.S. military industrial complex can somehow be converted into other means, other uses? It's, to me, the top demand that we should be making. The great abolitionist Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. So I say, what's our demand now, currently? We have a real problem in the world. It's not North Korea. It's not China. It's not Russia. Our real problem is global warming. And if we don't deal with that very, very soon, and some people say it's already too late, I'm one to at least give things a try, right? I, you know, I don't want to go down laying down giving up. Uh, we have to convert the military-industrial complex. We have to build rail systems touching every corner of this country. We have to build solar. We should have solar panels on every house and business in America. We should have wind every place possible. The Gulf of Maine 
as the largest wind capacity in the entire continental United States, just off the coast of where I live today. So uh, we could be building wind turbines at Bath Ironworks in my town instead of these warships that are being outfitted with missile defense systems. And the University of Massachusetts at Amherst Economics Department has long done a series of studies that said if we would build rail systems at Bath Ironworks here in Maine, we would double the number of jobs that we get because military spending creates the least jobs. It's the most capital intensive form of production. Whereas every other kind of spending, whether it's building rail or solar or tidal power, or hiring teachers or nurses, or building schools or hospitals, in every instance, we get more jobs when we do those kind of things. So here we are in an economy that everybody is job scared and we're all worried about jobs. Why aren't we making the collective demand, the environmental movement, the labor movement, the peace movement, the social justice movement, why aren't we collectively demanding the conversion of the military industrial complex? Because it's a win-win for everybody. It benefits everybody. More jobs, better a chance at dealing with, with the reality of climate change. Why aren't we doing that? People say, oh, well, the military's so big. Yeah, it's big, but if we don't take it on, we're finished. The largest carbon boot print on the planet is the Pentagon. If we don't take that on, we're finished. So why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we making that demand? We have to. Bruce Gagnon, your work has been brilliant. Your ability to explain this in detail is, I think, unsurpassed. And I want to thank you not only for what you do, but for having been my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby, very much. Good luck to you, and good luck to everyone else. Bruce Gagnon of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Know that in the website spaceforpeace.org, the four is a number, not a word. We'll have our second interview in just a moment, and a little while later we'll hear a bit more from Bruce during Activist Shoutout about an action we can take to help turn around the issue of nuclear weapons in space as well as exploding on our planet. But first... Where else will you find an alternative narrative to the nuclear fear drumbeat that keeps escalating on mainstream media? Nuclear Hot Seat is where. We try to get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week, and always from a different perspective, with fresh information you probably won't find no matter how hard you troll the Internet. If you value this information... Doesn't it deserve your support? Just a bit? You know what I'm asking. Help us out with a donation, now, so that we can keep bringing you the kinds of verifiable truth that you don't normally hear on nuclear issues. Any amount is deeply appreciated. Nothing is too small, and nothing is too large. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. There's also a green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of $5 a month, the price of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. So do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat to keep searching and sharing nuclear information that helps you understand what's really going on. 
whatever you can do to help us meet our expenses and keep Nuclear Hot Seat alive and growing, you have my gratitude. If push comes to nuclear shove with North Korea, Japan is right there, up close and personal, and a likely target. There have been many reports in the mainstream media news this week about the Japanese public going through bomb drills a la duck and cover, ordering bomb shelters, buying emergency supplies, living in fear and dread. But what is the truth? To find out, I spoke with Bo Jacobs, a professor at the Hiroshima Peace Institute of Hiroshima City University, where he is an historian of nuclear technologies and radiation technopolitics. He spoke to me from his home in Hiroshima, only 789 kilometers or 490 miles from the North Korean capital of Pyongyang. We spoke on Friday, August 11, 2017. Bo Jacobs, always good to talk with you for Nuclear Hot Seat. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You are in Japan, in Hiroshima. With the escalating war of words between the U.S. and North Korea, how are people in Japan responding to the kind of threats going back and forth, and especially the nuclear nature of the threats? Well, different parts of the society are responding differently. For forever, the Abe administration has been using even normalcy as a means of fear-mongering and trying to advance a militarist agenda. But that's pretty removed from most people's lives. Most people here really don't think about North Korea terribly much at all, and even now don't feel particularly threatened by North Korea, as since we live in this neighborhood, Kim Jong-un and the North Korean government is familiar to us. This kind of bluster and this kind of statements coming from him are kind of an annual ritual. So they're not something new and provocative. This is just sort of normal. So really, almost nobody that I talk to is taking any precautions, is particularly afraid of attack. Mostly, I'd say that almost the only thing I hear from anybody here is anxiety over the unpredictability of Trump, because you have a situation where Kim Jong-un is making the kind of declarative statements he makes, but Trump is responding as though there are insults to him personally that he needs to respond to. So that's the wild card, and everybody that I speak to here is nervous about Trump. Even though you're saying that people in Japan that you know or that are in your circles are not responding with much alarm, still there have been multiple news stories here in the States that orders for bomb shelters in Japan have been soaring, especially since North Korea's missile tests have been escalating in the course of this year. Yes, but you have to always read further into the articles in order to really determine what it is it's saying or if it's just basically using fear to sell media or to get clicks. One of those articles, for example, in The Guardian that I saw talking specifically about bomb shelters soaring in Japan, if you read the article fully, the actual sales were 12 units. It's just that the average year the sales are three units, so it is a dramatic spike but it's still 12 people. It's really not like people in Japan are buying bomb shelters. A lot of those stories really aren't about very many people. It's just clickbait fear stories. How likely is it, do you think, that North Korea would ever launch an unprovoked attack on Japan, Guam, or even the U.S. mainland? I think it's extremely unlikely. I think the only way that you could envision that is if the North Korean government perceived that it was under imminent threat of attack. This is really the only way they would engage military action. 
their main objective is to stay in power. Military conflict with the West means the end of that for them. So this is one of the reasons they have their strategy, their military forward strategy, which is that if we attack them at all, they'll respond with nuclear weapons. It's like somebody saying, if you touch me, I'll stab you. Their goal is not to stab you. Their goal is for you not to touch them. So people here know that they're not interested in aggressive, preemptive war. They can't win it. So the danger here is that they perceive that we are about to attack. For example, several times a year, the United States and South Korea and now Japan participating too conduct war games right up near the border of North Korea. And there's some going to start again at the end of the month. And there's the possibility that the North Korean, with this kind of discourse coming from Washington, that the North Korean government could think this is a pretext for invasion. But really, it would be the existential end game for them. That's not a step. Any military aggression on their part is not a step that they would take unless they thought it was all over and they were going to die. Earlier today, I was in a very good conversation with someone who wasn't necessarily of our perspective. And he asked me if diplomacy, which I was certainly advocating as the next logical step to dial down the tensions, if diplomacy was such a good tactic, how is North Korea allowed to get this far in its development of nuclear weapons and missiles? Well, that's an extremely easy question to answer. It's because we abandoned diplomacy. During the period of time in which the Clinton administration was engaged in diplomatic talks, six-party talks, those were not exactly amazingly fruitful talks. However, they did have the end result of North Korea not pursuing its weapon program and not pursuing its uranium enrichment program. It was when the George W. Bush administration came in and they declared that we don't talk to evil people, we don't talk to dictators, and they walked away from those negotiations. This is when the North Korean government committed itself to its program. And those weapons were developed under the George Bush administration when there was no diplomatic contact at all, whereas the advancement of the program had been halted during the period of diplomatic engagement with the Clinton administration. One of the things that might be fueling our side's, shall we say, aggressive languaging towards North Korea, one of the underlying reasons, might be an article I recently read that said that the country sits on top of $6 trillion worth of minerals and rare earth and other materials that could be exploited for economic gain. Do you see that as fitting into this picture at all? You know, it, it's hard not to find, when you have people like Eric Prince, who's, you know, advocating taking over and privatizing the Afghan war, partly because of the minerals there, when you have people like that having the president's ear and spending election night with the president, it's not hard to imagine that that kind of conversation it, it plays some role. But I think it would be ridiculous for the United States in any way to think that were it to topple the North Korean regime, that it would have access to those resources rather than China, which is on the border of North Korea. I don't think that it's in any way a given that the United States would be able to access any of that mineral wealth. Or I would add that that mineral wealth wouldn't deplete in value from becoming irradiated. If you were in charge of setting a course from this point forward between the two countries, between the United States and North Korea, what would you counsel? What would you like to see? Diplomatic negotiations, that has to be first and forward. I mean, this is not a situation that can be resolved militarily without the deaths of perhaps millions of people. And most of those people would be in South Korea and in Japan. Because that's the military option, that's not an option. 
I think that much like Jeff Lewis, uh, the arms control wonk, pointed out, when we abandon diplomatic engagement, this is a course we chose. We now have the end result of that, which is a nuclear-armed North Korea. They have advanced their program sufficiently that it's just a matter of time before they'll have fully capable intercontinental ballistic missiles with fully miniaturized nuclear weapons and even thermonuclear weapons. So we need to move into what, in terms of security issues, is a deterrence relationship with them. We cannot treat them any longer as though we can boss them around and we can tell them what is and is not acceptable. They are a fully nuclear power. They will be a fully nuclear power capable of projecting force extremely far very quickly. And so we simply need to treat them much more as an equal, much more as people we need to negotiate with, with whom we need to work to maintain a status quo and to lower tensions. And that's really the only option. They've put themselves in a position where they can't be ignored which was their goal, where they cannot be invaded, which was their goal. And so here we are. We have really no choice but to treat them as people with a full say in negotiations and people whose interests need to be taken seriously to avoid war. Will you be buying a bomb shelter anytime soon? No, no, I, uh, I didn't find it something that seemed useful during the Cold War when I was a child, and I don't find it any more useful now. I certainly don't think bomb shelters dramatically increase one's survivability. I think that is, as many people have called such things, security theater. Anything else you'd like to add at this time? Yeah, here in Northeast Asia, people are not acting the way they are in the United States. You know, people here say that the further away from Korea you get, the more worried you are about it. Friends of mine are going to Seoul on vacation. People that I know that live in Seoul are continuing on with life as normal. There's really nothing, nothing has changed here at all, except for the clickbait stories in the press, a little bit of security theater on the part of the Japanese government for those of us living in Japan. But most people are not terribly worried. They're only worried about the unpredictability of the U.S. government at this point. Bo Jacobs, that's great perspective to have at this time when perspective is getting so skewed. And I thank you for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's always a pleasure to join you and to join your listeners. That was Bo Jacobs of the Hiroshima Peace Institute. Activist shout out! At the end of my interview with Bruce Gagnon, he spoke about an October week-long event that anyone listening to this program can participate in to help dial back the nuclear madness. This fall, the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space is holding, I believe it's an annual event, Keep Space for Peace Week. That's going to be October 7th through 14th. What is that going to consist of, and what is your goal? Well, we've been doing this every year for about 15 years now. We have this Keep Space for Peace Week, and we ask local groups all over the world to organize events in their communities to help people begin to understand how everything that the Pentagon does today is coordinated using space technology. Every warship, every rocket, Every troop on the ground, driving their Humvees, breaking down doors in the middle of Afghanistan or Iraq, they're hooked up to satellites inside of the Humvee. They have a computer screen with a map that is hooked up to satellites that they're using to find where various people live. Everything the military does today is coordinated by space technology. So expensive 
the Pentagon brags, the military industrial complex brags, that this space technology system is so expensive, they call it the largest industrial project in the history of the planet Earth. And they said in Space News some years ago in an editorial that we've got to be responsible corporate citizens. We've got to come up with a dedicated funding source to pay for this. And we have. And they said we're now sending our lobbyists to Washington to secure that dedicated funding source. What is it? They said it's the entitlement programs that officially in America are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and what's left of the welfare program after Bill Clinton got finished with it. These are the programs that the war machine has identified to defund in order to pay for this whole space technology program. So we ask people during Keep Space for Peace Week to help the public understand this bigger picture. In fact, it's so expensive, even after the Pentagon takes control of the entitlement programs, they still can't pay for it. And now they're bringing in the allies. And that's why Trump and Obama before him have gone to NATO and said, you've got to pay more into NATO. You've got to pay 2% of your national budget. Because when they buy in to this whole program, they have to purchase technology from Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon that's interoperable, means fits together with U.S. space technology. So it's a boondoggle for the weapons corporations here in the United States. So even people around the world then are interested in this space technology program because it's now coming out of their hide. They're cutting health care in Canada and in England in order to pay a greater share of this U.S. space technology program. So Keep Space for Peace Week is all about helping people around the whole world begin to see this picture. And if you go to our website, spaceforpeace.org, spaceforpeace.org, you can see the poster, the flyer for this year's Keep Space for Peace Week. And if someone or some group wishes to hold an event or start a presence on this issue, what kind of support can you provide them? We can help them in many ways, and we want to know about it because we want to keep a list. We want to share that list around the world with others to show all the places that these kind of events are happening. They could be anything like a protest at a particular base or military production facility, or they could be just a film showing. We have lots of wonderful videos on our website. We have a section called Space Videos. You can go and pick off... uh, some great documentaries that have been made about all these issues and show them in your community as part of Keep Space for Peace Week. Or contact us if you need other resources. We're happy to help in any way. Bruce Gagnon of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Remember that the website spaceforpeace.org uses the number four and not a written word. Here's today's final thought. What is this headlong rush to escalate nuclear threats between two nuclear bomb-wielding countries? Okay, North Korea launched some missiles that they were testing. But why did Donald Trump suddenly go on such a harsh offensive, seemingly improvising what sure sounded like a nuclear threat, which he repeated in the exact same words twice in a row, as is his neurolinguistic programming habit. 
Why did he do that when his talking points were supposed to be about the opioid epidemic? When you wave a red flag at a bull you already know is charging, you know he's going to double down and charge some more. Kim Jong-un's belligerent response was completely predictable and within character. And Trump, within character, kept upping the ante. His languaging wasn't tough enough. North Korea's leader threatened to land a nuke in Guam. One side ups the toughness. The other side ups the toughness. Season raises the ante. Where this might end is not pretty. This is, to me, evidence of testosterone-driven obsession to achieve an ultimate wargasm. See, when someone's under threat, it kicks their adrenals into fight, flight, or freeze. Adrenaline is a powerful system-wide drug that feeds aggression, fear, rage, the overwhelming obsessive drive for dominance. It gives the body the physical shakes, it short-circuits the brain and makes you do things that, in saner moments, you wouldn't even consider. Murder. Rape. Nuclear annihilation. Engaging in competitive rage and threats kicks up an opioid-like craving for more, more, ever more, more of a jolt, more of a kick, with never true satisfaction to be found. And the cycle repeats endlessly, like that of an addict obsessed with finding his next fix, praying it will be strong enough to exceed his greatest high without killing him. This, in turn, leads to the craving for the comfort of endorphins, those hormones that provide release, enjoyment, temporary satisfaction, something that for a while feels as good as if, if not better than sex. And then... Once the moment passes, the obsession returns, with the temptation to build it a little longer, a little harder, a little bit more powerfully towards an ultimate wargasm. So let's rile up another nuclear nation in front of the international media, call out the troops, the Pacific Fleet, hold war games on their border, threaten obliteration, all the while tweeting the narrative to the world, 140 characters at a time. Donald Trump has never been known for his restraint, and Kim Jong-un's got plenty of violence in him and is not afraid to let it out, especially against his country's dissidents and anyone who threatens his country's borders. It seems that these two national leaders are a match made in diplomatic hell, and they both have the ability to launch the rest of us into a real nuclear hell. Kim Jong-un says his country won't initiate a nuclear war, but if attacked by the U.S., will launch a nuke at Guam. Then we'll feel forced to retaliate against North Korea. And then China and Russia will back North Korea against us. They've already promised they will. And we will have World War III. Meanwhile, Guam, little Guam, has been holding peace rallies. Like an abused girlfriend or wife, being fought over by two powerful boymen who care only for their own agendas, neither one of whom she wants, she quietly asks, Can't we all just get along? Let's listen to Guam. Let's dial it down.
down. Because in the nuclear game of my bang's bigger than your bang, no matter how big your wargasm, nobody wins. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 15, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from Nuclear-News.net, Cape Cod Times, and their ace reporter, Christine Legere, SCCC.org.au, NBCNewsNow.com, NBC.com, Nears.org, ZeroHedge.com, TheWeek.com, TheHill.com, and Cape Downwinders. We'll have a full duck and cover report on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's nuclear reactor problems next week. Special thanks to Kevin Hester in New Zealand for helping me straighten out some audio tech and the Perseid Meteor Shower for linguistic inspiration. A big welcome to broadcast station KEPWFM in Eugene, Oregon, which this week joins the growing nuclear hot seat family of broadcast affiliates. It's an amazing week to be joining us, don't you think? The show airs on KEPW on Monday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific Time at 97.3 FM. It's also available online at KEPW.org. And if you know of a broadcast station in your area that would be interested in carrying the show, have them get in contact by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the cure for global warming is not nuclear winter or nuclear autumn or any other nuclear season. There, you've just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.